Tonight we begin a new series with the season change into Lent, and this series is entitled Encounters with Jesus. Primarily, these will be encounters taken from the Gospel of John, these life-transforming encounters from many of the passages in the Gospel of John that many of us are familiar with. But in tonight's passage, tonight, traditionally, on the first Sunday in Lent, the church deals with this encounter between Jesus and the devil in the wilderness. And so we're going to spend our time reflecting on this passage out of Mark or Matthew chapter 4 that Sam just read for us. The context here is key. The uh, passage begins, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the then follows directly on what came before it in chapter 3, verse 17, and right before that, which was the baptism of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The voice from heaven has just said, after Jesus received the Spirit coming up out of the waters of baptism. So his identity has been made clear. And now the question is, how is he going to fulfill this identity as the Son of God? This vocation, this unique calling upon his life. And looming in the background for Matthew, certainly, are two noteworthy failures on this question in the past of God's people up to this point. The first failure in terms of living out the vocation to be the son of God is Israel, referred to as God's son in Exodus, in the early chapters of Exodus. The people that God had called out to be his own for his own possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people that were meant to shine God's light to the world and to reflect the world back to God. Time and time again, instead of living faithfully to this vocation as the Son of God, Israel caved in, craved what the world had, gave up its obedience to the Lord and became just like the world around it, just like the nations around it. So that's one story that's looming in the background here, certainly through the early chapters of Matthew. And the second story is the one that was read for us earlier as well out of Genesis, going back to the very beginning, the first son of God, Adam, and his wife Eve in the garden, the original children of God, who weren't able to resist the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, and by eating the fruit that they were told not to eat, by disobeying the will of God, they invited a lot of carnage and pain and heartache, not just upon them, but upon all their descendants, including you, and me today. And so the question that's driving at this point in the text in Matthew 4 is, will Jesus be any different? Will this son of God pursue his vocation in any way that's different from what's gone on in the past? And obviously the answer to the question is yes, we know how this works, but by being faithful in this testing, Jesus answers the question, will he be any different with an emphatic yes, and then the rest of his ministry culminating in the cross and the resurrection, demonstrate the fruit-bearing result of the one who pursues this vocation of being a child of God faithfully, following the will of God. And this fruit-bearing nature of Jesus actually helps us to begin to understand why God tests us in the first place. If you noted when this was read in in verse 1 of, of Matthew 4, it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And that's a bit awkward for us in thinking about the fact that the one who's shown clearly in the driver's seat here, the initiator of this episode, is God himself in the person of his spirit. But clearly, God does test us. He tests his people. Proverbs 17.3, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. The Lord tests hearts. Why? Why does God test us? And it's to reveal what's inside of us, to, re- to reveal what's in our hearts. The, the passage, Jesus quotes scripture three times when being tempted here. And he quotes twice from Deuteronomy 6 and once from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. The verse right before the one Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, says this. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. It's the same with Abraham, which is our reading today in our Lenten devotional as well. The testing of Abraham. Would he obey my voice? Would he abide by my will? God tests us to reveal the nature of what is inside of us in our hearts. And when that testing produces or reveals the genuineness of faith, it also produces, according to James chapter 1, steadfastness in us. And according to 1 Peter 1, genuineness. So that the testing of faith not only reveals it, but begins to strengthen and refine one's faith. And this then strengthening and refining of the testing that God subjects us to in our lives better equips us to pass future tests, greater tests that will come in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, the point of this is not just so that we can get really good at handling tests uh, and at bearing up under hardships. But the point of this is to strengthen and reveal our faith in order that we might grow and strengthen and, and bear fruit for God through our lives in the way that we live. So Jesus passes this early test in Matthew chapter 4, only to be dealt the more significant test in the Garden of Gethsemane and then on the cross at Calvary. So here's the question I want us to consider with this in mind. In our vocation as children of God, and every one of us who's here who claims to have faith in Jesus is a child of God. We've been adopted by God into his family. You are a son of God or a daughter of God. And you have a unique vocation now to live as one who has this identity, this unique identity, as one who is a child of God. The question is, will we be faithful and bear fruit for the Lord? In many ways, this is the question we're asking during a Lenten season of self-examination and, and looking at our lives again in a fresh way. God, will I be faithful to you? Is this going to mark my life? Is an allegiance to you and a turning my life and my will over to you, is that what's going to mark me? as your child, or will something else? So the question I want to ask as we think about this is, how did Jesus do it? How how is it, as we look at this text, that Jesus passed the test? How is it that he was faithful? And in looking at that, I hope that we can take some things away for our own lives and thinking about this question of being faithful in our lives as God's children. And I want to suggest for you that one of the keys to understanding how Jesus was faithful is actually found in a very overlooked part of this passage right at the beginning 
in verse 2. In verse 2, we read that Jesus first in verse 1 was led into the wilderness. And it says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So the simple application is you need to go out and fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, it's not that simple. But there's something significant in this, in what's going on here. Jesus is taken out into the wilderness. What is the wilderness? It's a barren place, right? It's a place where those things that often ground us in terms of our identity are stripped away, taken away, and no longer around us. It's a place where all of our false identities get pushed away. False identities which come from being in civilization, which is the opposite of of the wilderness. Such as, I am the sum total of my value in the eyes of others. That's who I am. Or I am what I do. Or I am what I have. In the wilderness, there are no others to attach our identity to. In the wilderness, there is nothing really for us to do. In the wilderness, we don't have the possessions that sometimes define us. Jesus was led out into the wilderness. This question then of who am I becomes apparent in a setting of barrenness such as the wilderness. It begs this question of identity. The wilderness is in a kind of deprivation. But then in verse 2, and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Fasting itself is also a kind of deprivation. It's a removing from our life certain things that we might find rootedness in. And not oftentimes know it. When we do this, as we'll do this this week, we do weekly fast throughout the Lenten season at Church of the Cross. When we do this this week with sweets and treats, we remove those things from our lives. We're intentionally depriving ourselves of certain things. It's like bringing the wilderness, in a sense, to us to ensure that we're not leaning upon them for life or for sustenance. You know, in many ways, we don't really realize just how tied our identity is or our life is to these kinds of things until we remove them from our lives. We don't realize how tied we are to food until we deprive our bodies of food or how tied up we are with social media until we quiet our life and remove social media from us or music or coffee or whatever it might be. And fasting is a kind of way of removing these things from us and making us weak again. Reminding us of our weakness and our dependency and our longing and craving for those things that somehow our life gets so tied up into. And in fasting, we're invited in and through deprivation to, again, take those parts of our lives that get so wound up with our appetites or other things other areas of life that get so wound up in these things and to uproot them again from those things and place them back again in God himself. To uproot parts of ourselves that have been so tied into parts of this world that suddenly we're supported and strengthened by so much extraneous 
things, so many extraneous things that were no longer really rooted upon the rock which is God himself. So fasting is a voluntary kind of deprivation with the purpose of actually relocating the foundation of our life in God and not in those things. So here's Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights, in a place of barrenness, a place where identity must be found and only the only place that it can be found because there's nothing else to find it in. And here's Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights, hungry and weak. And we can only, I believe, rightly assume that in these 40 days, Jesus is crying out to the Father. He's deeply meditating upon the Word of God. Reciting Psalms. I don't think it would be too far from reality to to realize that it may be in these 40 days that Jesus is reflecting upon these passages in the book of Isaiah that begin to shape his understanding of his unique vocation as the Son of God, the suffering servant who would bear the sins of many. And praying and crying out and lying on the ground and probably struggling with staying awake and dealing with the difficulties of being out in the barrenness so that every ounce of who he was as a man made in the flesh would be stripped down bare so that his identity would be rooted only in his father. And so when he gets to this moment in verse 3, that the tempter comes, he enters it, yes, deeply hungry, as verse 2 says. But having gone through a period of significant refinement and relinquishing and dependency, that more than anything else begin to root and to shape, to anchor his understanding of who he is as the Son of God in God himself, in the Father, and in his word. Then he encounters the three tests. Turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself down from the height of the temple or fall down and worship me. All three tests challenging the fundamental question of your life and of my life. Is God enough? Is God everything? Is God my foundation, my life? The first two of these challenges, the first two of these uh, tests challenge this quite subtly. The third one, incredibly explicitly. The first one, stones being turned into bread, Jesus is hungry. He resists the opportunity to take control, to take matters into his own hands by making bread and satisfying his hunger. It's something that he, of course, has the power to do, as we'll go on to read about in the Gospels when he. Uh, miraculously multiplies the bread and feeds the 4,000 and the 5,000. But it's been ordered, hasn't it, by the devil and not by his father. And there's nothing wrong with Jesus turning stones into bread. There's nothing explicitly wrong. And here we get into the craftiness of the devil. But Jesus resists that temptation 
which would in many ways become his own, would make him his own master. I'm going to go out and take control of my situation, my weakness. Instead of yielding and waiting upon the word of my father, I'm going to go out and take matters into my own hands and meet my needs. It's a subtle temptation. It's one that we face daily as children of God. Especially when there's something that we deeply want or desire. And the temptation is go ahead. Take it. Run with it. Meet that need. Meet that craving that you have. Jesus resists this. Quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 and saying that we live not by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. By living in the word. Elsewhere Jesus says my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This period of refining and of testing and of rooting has given him the strength in the midst of this moment to yield to the temptation of taking his life into his own hands, meeting his own needs in his way, in his time. And saying, no, God is enough. Then he resists the urge to test God. It's not, perhaps, it's it's not explicitly seemingly evil. Again, the devil is still being crafty and trying to be subtle in his approach to knocking Jesus off this path of a faithful and fruit-bearing vocation as the Son of God. Show us who you really are. Show us that God really cares for you. And he quotes Psalm 91, completely out of context, and says, look, he'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In fact, Jesus, if you do this, you're not disobeying your father, you're only showing that his word is true, so do this. It's a subtle kind of trickery. But Jesus says no. And when he quotes Deuteronomy 6 which refers back to Exodus 17, it's very clear why he says no. In Exodus 17, the people of God, the children of God, the Son of God Israel had been taken out of Egypt, through the, out of the bondage for Pharaoh, through the Red Sea, and on into the wilderness. And as they get into the wilderness, they get thirsty. And they want water, and they demand water. And the text in Exodus 17 says that they were basically saying, is, not the, is the Lord God really among us? And it demonstrates a weakness of their faith, a a, a lack of their faith that tests God and says, if you really love us, show us that you love us by giving us water now because we're thirsty. And that kind of, of door into their lives is something that Jesus refuses to open in his own life. Remember, 40 days and nights wrestling with this question of who am I? Does he need a demonstration of the faithfulness of his father? Did the Israelites really need to demand that God give them water in that moment to prove that the Lord was for them? Jesus resists this temptation to put God to the test because in our lives when we put God to the test it signifies that we do not trust him 
And it signifies that everything that he's done for us up to this point wasn't enough. And we have the cross and resurrection of Jesus to know deeply that God is for us. To know that God has pledged himself to us. That God will give us all that we need. So Jesus won't say that God hasn't done enough. And we too, with identity rooted in him, don't need to test him. We know as his children, just like Jesus knows as his son, that he's for us. These two strategies don't work for the devil, so he kind of throws down the gauntlet in the third test. And any subtlety is now gone. And he says to Jesus, he takes him up on the high mountain, he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory, and he says, Jesus, I'll give these all to you if you'll fall down and worship me, verse 9. Just trade God, just trade him. Trade him for everything that I can give you. This is the... This is the lie behind every kind of sin in the world. This is the lie that took place in Genesis 3. It's a little more subtle in Genesis 3 than it is here. But it's always the fundamental lie that we're faced with in seeking to live out this vocation as the children of God. Jesus doesn't yield. Satan shows what he really, I really just want you to worship me. And Jesus doesn't yield. Instead, he stands firm and he quotes again Deuteronomy 6. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is Jesus who says later in his ministry, as if this doesn't resonate with what went on right here in the wilderness. What good is it for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus knows that he already has the pearl of great price in having the Father, and he doesn't need any other thing to satisfy him or to make him whole. He knows who he is as the Son of God. So just in conclusion, all of this resistance to the temptation and the testing that will come, that came in Jesus' life, and that will come and certainly does come in our lives can only be resisted from one who's ultimately and utterly been convinced that God is enough, that God is the highest value in our life, and that nothing else is worth him. Everything else, God is everything, everything else, relatively speaking, is nothing. Where do we get this perspective? We get it from the word of God which Jesus so beautifully demonstrates for us by digesting this book, these words that Jesus no doubt was meditating on and chewing on and feeding on for the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, and by dwelling upon this and the supremacy of God that's revealed in these words, the identity that is ours in him begins to be more solidified, rooted, and strengthened. This is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Jesus' key in his challenge to live a faithful vocation is being fundamentally and deeply rooted in the word of God. To stand upon that word. To know that word. To wield that word in the face 
of trial and testing. That's where we get it. Then how is that perspective reinforced and strengthened in our experience? It's by the wilderness. And this is the invitation to keeping a holy Lent over the next 40 or so days. By a voluntarily chosen kind of wilderness of fasting. Whereby we are ripped from those things that begin to seep their way into our, our identity. That then open the door for the testing and the temptation to be succumbed to. And it also happens by the Lord's testing, which often comes through the involuntary sufferings that we experience in this world. The deprivations. One thing that suffering will always do, it will strip us down until we build our house on the rock and the rock alone. And to what end do these things happen? It's to the glory of God. And bearing fruit for him. Jesus tempted in Matthew 4 is then tempted in a greater way. Where the same exact words that were on the lips of the tempter in Matthew 4. Are now on the lips of the people at the foot of the cross. And here's what they say. If you are the son of God. That's exactly what the devil said in the first two tests in Matthew 4. If you are the son of God. Bring yourself down from there. That we might know. And in that moment, Jesus resists again that temptation to choose his own way and yields himself to the way of the Father, which ultimately bears great fruit for God and the kingdom of God. Showing us the way to the Father, creating for us the way to the Father by his rootedness his resistance, his understanding of who he ultimately was as a child of God. The question is, will we resist in that same way as we move forward day after day in our lives? Will we relinquish the identities that so grab us from time to time and stand on the fundamental truth that this word proclaims to us through and through God is enough. God is everything. Thanks be to God. Amen.